Good morning. Uh, I'm excited to be here. How about you? All right. Uh, well, my name is Eric. I get to be the pastor here. I just want to say welcome. Thanks for being here. Whether, whether this is your first time or uh, you've been coming for two and a half years, which is how long we've been around as a church. We've been in this series, Esther, for the last couple weeks. And man, Esther is kind of a crazy book, right? It's kind of like a, a Mexican soap opera with uh, Persian subtitles. Like, we got everything. You've got crazy, drunken, powerful men. You've got beautiful women. You've got court intrigue. Uh, you've got uh, impending death on the horizon. The book of Esther is an amazing book that we've been diving into. Uh, why don't you stand with me, and we're going to read uh, the first verse of, in God's Word that we're going to be diving into today. Uh, Esther 5, 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Uh, let's pray. God, I pray that this morning you would be here in our midst. I thank you for the book of Esther that teaches us to trust you that even when we can't see you, to know that you are there at work behind the scenes. God, I pray that this morning uh, what I say will be your words, not mine. Uh, thank you that you are here with us. In your name we pray, amen. Go ahead and take a seat. Uh, if you're new this morning, you haven't been with us through this whole series, let me just give you a quick recap of where we've been. In chapter one, we met King Ahasuerus. That's his Persian name. His Greek name, you might know him, uh, King uh, Xerxes. Uh, he's the drunken, powerful, crazy king of the Persian Empire. And he deposed his first wife, Vashti, because she kind of disrespected him, then fought and lost a war to 300 Spartans, then held the first season of basically The Bachelor in Persia, uh, where he had hundreds of virgin girls coming in for one-night stands with him, and that's where he found his second wife, Esther, and married her. That's kind of what we've been going through. And his right-hand man, who is second in command over the whole Persian Empire, is a guy named Haman. We met Haman last week. Haman loves power and fame and glory. In fact, he has a law written that states that everyone must bow down to him on his throne. Everyone but the king must bow down to Haman as he's second in charge over the whole Persian Empire. And everyone does. Everyone who sees Haman sitting on his throne, they bow down, except for this one guy named Mordecai. We talked about last week, what an awkward situation. Everyone's bowing down, and there's Mordecai just standing there like, I'm not going to bow down to you, like probably on his tippy toes, like doing the anti-bow to Haman, like I am not going to bow down. Well, this enrages Haman so much, he says, I'm going to kill that guy. And like a good mobster movie, he's like, I'm not just going to kill that guy, I'm going to kill his whole family. And not just his whole family, I'm going to kill everyone who belongs to his people group, which is the Jewish people, God's people. So Haman goes to King Ahasuerus, uh, king of the Persian Empire, and basically pitches it as a revenue stream and says, here, let me commit genocide. We'll wipe out all these people, then we'll seize all their goods, and it'll be a great source of income for you because you'll get all their wealth and, and their possessions. And King Ahasuerus is like, sure, why not? So the king signs this decree, and the date is set for the slaughter of every Jewish man, woman, and child. Death is on the horizon for God's people. That's where we find ourselves in the story. Well, Esther finds out about this, and lo and behold, we find out she's one of God's people. Esther, no one knows it, but she's actually Jewish. No one knows that she's Jewish except her adopted father, Mordecai. 
Because honestly, she hasn't been a faithful, godly woman her whole life. This means she hasn't been obeying the scriptures. She hasn't been tithing. She hasn't been joining together with God's people in public prayers or celebrating the Jewish holidays. She hasn't been obeying the dietary laws of the Old Testament. She hasn't been meeting with God's people or worshiping or studying the scriptures. And no one knows she's Jewish, including her own husband, the king of Persia. But something really cool happened last week we talked about. That last Sunday we saw that Esther faced her kairos, her defining moment. And she stepped into the beginning of her destiny. And there's something really cool that I noticed studying this week, the book of Esther, that I'd never noticed before. Many times, you know, I've read this book in my life. That up until chapter 5, our author, except for one exception, up until chapter 5, the author of the book of Esther always addresses Esther as just Esther. But after this defining moment in her life where she's to you this I'm going to choose to identify with God's people. I'm going to step into this Kairos moment. We're going to see, starting from the middle of chapter 5 onwards, the author addresses her as Queen Esther. And what we see is she's transforming before our eyes in the middle of the story and embracing the destiny that God has planned for her. This morning, you are handed a program when you walked in the door. There should be a note sheet in there. One of the reasons we give you a note sheet is that we don't want to just give you some information. We want to help you have a life of transformation. And we hope that if you can hear it, if you can write it down, see it, discuss it, that'll get those truths down into your heart. So the first thing, if you're taking notes, I want you to write down is that when we embrace our true identity, that's when we can start to walk in our destiny. That when we embrace our true identity, that's when we can walk in our destiny. When I went to college, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I knew God was, was asking me to enter into some kind of vocational ministry, working for him, but I didn't know what that meant. I, I wanted to be a lawyer, and God said, no, you're going to be working for me instead. And you can do both, I know, Brian. But for me, God said, no. And so I went to college, and I wasn't sure what that meant. And, and I did a lot of music and student ministry and different things. And, and right after college, after I graduated, I, I worked at a church, and it was a great experience. But our senior pastor, uh, he, he didn't want anyone to use titles or anything. He just kind of said, hey, just call me Bob. I'm just Bob. I'm not anything special. And, and it was interesting, though, that as I worked there, it was quickly apparent, hey, even as a staff member, you're not allowed to approach him. He will talk to you. You will not talk to him. And he only meets with these three people throughout the week. And so I said, so he's not my pastor. Like, oh, no, no, no. He's not your pastor. Even as a staff member at this church. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that for them. But years later, as I figured out my calling on my life and who has God called me to be? Is it a musician? Is it someone who works with students? Until finally, I realized, you know what? God is calling me to pastor. And pastoring is a lot more than just being a public speaker. I write a research paper every week, which is funny because I used to like test, test a lot more than research papers. And God called me to basically write a research paper every week, a couple thousand words. But pastoring is more than just speaking. 
Pastoring is more than just running a small business like this or marketing plans and overseeing employees. Pastoring is a lot more than all of that. And there is a sacred responsibility to shepherd that God has called me into. And when we started this church, I said, God, I don't want to forget that. I don't want to just be someone up here who's speaking, who's just overseeing budgets and marketing plans and, and overseeing staff. And so maybe you've been around for a while and, and you notice people call me Pastor Eric. It's not because I want to be on some pedestal. Honestly, it's a reminder to me what my calling and my identity is. That I'm not just some speaker, just someone who's looking at a business plan, that I'm called to pastor and shepherd and lead. See, when you embrace your true identity, that's when you can step into your destiny. I actually love it when certain churches say brother or sister. We don't do that here. But I think that's great because that is reminding us of our true identity, that we are a family, that we're not just strangers, but we are family on mission together. Amen? And so there is power in words. And so maybe if you've been around for a while and you're like, man, why do people call Eric Pastor Eric? Is it because he wants some kind of fancy title? No. Honestly, it's to remind me of my calling. I don't know what that is for you, but words have power. And when we realize that we are a son or daughter of God, when we embrace who we are in Christ as our identity, that's when we can start to step into the destiny that God has for us. From chapter 5 onwards, Esther is portrayed as Queen Esther, queen of the world's mightiest empire. She comes into her own as queen only after she has decided to identify herself and align herself with God's covenant people. She's no longer just a trophy wife, a queen in name only, but by putting on her royal robes in defense of her people, she takes up the power of her position. Verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, we read in verse 1, on the, first day, on the third day, she approaches the king. She puts on her royal robes. She's stepping into her identity and her destiny. And she knows, we learned this last week, that anyone who approaches the king without being invited, the sentence is death. She knows as she puts on her royal robes, as she's preparing herself to possibly meet her death, because to face the king without being invited, and she hasn't been invited to see him in 30 days, She's stepping into, okay, God, whatever you have for me, I might die, but I'm going to face my king. It says, and when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The king was offering her life and salvation by extending his scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Esther, as she steps into her identity and begins to embrace her destiny, she now has the two most powerful people in the empire 
responding to her initiative to come to this banquet. Esther has faced her defining moment, and that is changing her. She's growing in wisdom and patience. She's waiting for the right moment to reveal her true Jewish identity and to make her request known to save God's people. But she realizes in this moment, as she's growing in wisdom, this is not the right time. As God's people, we want to have a bias towards action and doing things for him, but we need to have patience. And we need to understand when patience is different than laziness. Amen? And so Esther says, you know what? I was going to have this banquet, and this is not the right time. So I'm going to throw another banquet tomorrow night. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I'll prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Esther is building suspense for her husband, the king. Ladies, this is never a bad thing to build some suspense and anticipation in the life of your husband. It's a good thing to build that suspense. Maybe you want to leave a note when he heads off to work or goes to school or whatever it might be, like, hey, just wait till tonight. They got a surprise for you. Like, I'm telling you, he's going to be more intrigued and more likely to want to listen to you. So after this, the king has this intriguing banquet with his wife and she's leaving him wanting more and there's some suspense there, what happens is actually the king can't sleep. He's like, oh man, what, is, what does Esther want? His mind's kind of whirling. And this is like, well done, Queen Esther. You've got him thinking and he can't sleep. So chapter 6 tells us that because the king can't sleep, his mind's whirling, he's like, hey, bring some people in. Let's go through some old court documents. That'll help me fall asleep. And we're not going to read through chapter 6. If you want to in your own time, you can do that. I'm just going to do a quick summary. Basically, King Ahasuerus can't sleep. Esther's got this banquet. He's like, what does he want to ask me tomorrow night? This is very intriguing, very mysterious. I don't know. And he says, hey, read me some old court news. And they find out five years ago, Mordecai, Esther's adopted dad, had saved the life of King Ahasuerus. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And he said, oh, that's awesome. What kind of reward was given to Mordecai? And they said, well, nothing. And that was not common. Usually a reward is given. And he's like, oh, no, we have to remedy the situation. Who's around? They're like, well, Haman is around. Well, Haman, after he left that feast with Esther, he's feeling really good. Everyone's bowing down to him. But then he sees Mordecai just standing there giving him the stink eye, like, on his tippy toes. I'm not going to bow down to you. So Haman's really angry, and he leaves that feast, goes home to his wife, and tells her, he's like, man, this is all great. I had a private dinner with, you know, uh, the king and Esther. I was hanging out with, you know, Jay-Z and Beyonce. Like, this is great. But this one guy's not giving respect, and his wife's like, well, what you got to do is got to put him in his place. So build a giant impaling pole in our backyard, 75 feet high, and then ask the king that you can basically crucify him on that pole. The Persians were the ones that invented crucifixion, then the Romans perfected it. And so Haman's on his way to the king to ask, hey, I want to crucify and kill Mordecai because he doesn't give me the respect I need. At that same time, because King Ahasuerus just by chance, can't sleep. He's reviewing the court documents, figures out he hasn't uh, done anything to honor Mordecai for saving his life. So then Haman walks in, asking to kill Mordecai, but the king says, hang on, what should be done for someone that the king wants to honor? And Haman thinks, well, who would want to honor except for me? Haman has a little bit of an ego and pride there. So he's like, uh, let him borrow uh, Air Force One and, you know, get to ride in your clothes, uh, Sir Jay-Z. You know, that's kind of what he's saying. He's like, give me a robe that you've worn. Let me ride on your, your horse and have someone lead the person you want to honor through the city saying, you know, everyone uh, pay honor to him. And the king's like, that's a great idea. Go and do that for Mordecai. And Haman's like, what? Like, I came in here asking to kill him, and now i got to lead him through the streets, 
put him on this special robe on a horse. It's crazy. And so there's this crazy reversal that happens. Then instead of Mordecai dying, he gets honored, all because, by happenstance, the king can't sleep. So in spite of having all the power of the Persian Empire at his disposal, Haman's carefully laid plans are turning against them because the king had a sleepless night. The book of Esther is teaching us that beneath the surface of human decisions and actions, God is at work to accomplish his perfect purposes. That even though we may not see God working and moving, we may not see red seas being parted, we may not see burning bushes, we may not see Lazarus come out of the tomb, that beneath the surface of human decisions and actions, God is still at work. Even if we can't see it, God is at work. God is at work through sleepless nights. God is at work just through the crazy reversal that God will turn things around for his purposes. Chapter 6, verse 13. And Haman, after leading his enemy through the streets and all his honor, and Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, so she's telling him this, like, sorry, man, you're not going to overtake him. The king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So now we're going to the second feast. And Esther now has the delicate and dangerous task of having to accuse Haman without incriminating her husband, who had, after all, sealed Haman's decree to murder all the Jewish people with his full knowledge and approval. She has to incite the king's wrath against his friend and close advisor without bringing the king's wrath down on herself. And we're going to see one set in motion, things start to move at breathtaking speed. And Esther is going to use a similar tactic that the prophet Nathan used against David when confronting David's own sin. When Nathan told him a story about a man who stole someone else's little lamb, and David's like, who is this? It's you. We're going to see Esther kind of does the same thing. Chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther, a private banquet. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. She's basically saying, here's my request. I don't want to be murdered. Man, can you imagine what the king is thinking? Like, how many thought he was like, all right, Esther's probably asking for some, you know, brand new dual exhaust camel or something, like a new ride for her, you know? Uh, Or, don't think about that too much. Uh, Or, you know, some fancy, you know, clothes or a vacation or something, Instead, she's like, my big request is I don't want to be murdered. It's pretty bold, though. You know, in chapters 1 through 4, as we've seen Esther, she was silent. Now she's speaking. She was passive. Now she's active. This is a woman growing in her faith, and her growing faith is demonstrated by courageous action. A growing faith is demonstrated by courageous action. That when we grow in our knowledge and understanding and trust of God, we will snudge in the Holy Spirit and say, hey, go talk to that person. Go pray for that person. Go buy that person a meal. Share your time, your energy, your money with that person. A growing faith is demonstrated by taking those courageous steps to say, I'm not sure about this, but I feel like this is where God is leading me. I'm going to step out into that. Verse 4. 
For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. I love this. She knows her husband. If you've been following along for the last couple chapters, Hazarus is a bit of a drunk. He's always drinking. He's always having these feasts. And so she knows her husband's had a few drinks. And so she's like, I don't want you to miss this. I'm going to say the same thing three times. Destroyed, killed, annihilated. Are you getting this? And he's like, wait, what? Like, I love that. Ladies, sometimes you have to spell it out for your man, okay? I'm just telling you. It's biblical. She says, if we had been sold merely as slaves, if we'd just been slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Ah, if we'd just been enslaved, I wouldn't have brought it to your attention. But we're going to be killed. Then King Ahazar says to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? And who has dared to do this? Then Esther says, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. At this private dinner, Esther stands up and points her finger at Haman. Like, man, this is a bad day to be Haman, right? Like, you thought you were going to dinner with the king and queen. Like, you put that on Facebook, like, going to the dinner with the king and queen, private dinner. Again, I'm going to post photos to Instagram later. Just watch out for those. Like, that's Haman, right? He's, like, all proud. He's, you know, he's thinking this is good. At the end of the good meal, he's drinking his wine. Esther stands up and points the finger. A foe, Haman. He's like, wait, what? Someone's trying to kill the queen and you think it's me? Like, he didn't even know that she was Jewish. Now, this tells you too that the king didn't know his wife very well because he didn't know that she was Jewish because he signed a degree to kill all the Jewish people. This is like, they've been married five years at this time. So this is like you've been married five years. You come home to your wife and you're like, hey, what you doing, honey? Oh, I'm making dinner. Oh, yeah, what's for dinner tonight? Oh, I'm cooking up some Asian food. Oh, why are you making Asian food tonight? Well, because I'm Asian, silly. It's like, wait, what? How long have you been Asian? It's like, this whole time. How did you not know this? That's kind of like what's happening here. He's like, he's like, you're Jewish? Like, what? Why have we not been celebrating Hanukkah all this time? You know, like, that's kind of what's going on here. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. See, Haman knows the king well enough to know that the king has never made up his own mind. We've seen again and again his advisors have been manipulating him to make different actions. And he knows his only chance for survival is Esther. But Persian harem protocol dictated that only the king could be alone with a woman who is a part of his harem, which is what Queen Esther was. And so when King Ahasuerus left the room, Haman should have left, but he's kind of in a pickle because where is he going to go? He's not going to follow the king out to the garden because he's filled with wrath and angry. If he leaves the whole room, it kind of seems like he's guilty, so he stays behind when he shouldn't have. And also, Persian harem protocol dictated that no one could be within seven steps of anyone who belonged to the king's harem, any of his women. Now we're going to see Haman actually fall on the couch that the queen is laying on. Like, if you're the queen of Persia, you get the whole couch to yourself, right? Like, you get the remote and everything. And Haman's going to fall on the couch. Like, this is almost unthinkable. There's actually ancient Jewish tradition that says, perhaps Gabriel pushed Haman onto the couch. Uh, we don't know, because it's so unthinkable what he does here. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said... Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? Now, 
is Haman, in the midst of all this, he's a little drunk, his friend the king walks out in anger, he's just been accused, do you think this is the time he's probably trying to sexually assault the queen? Probably not. He's probably just begging for his life, but he's violated harem protocol, which is a serious affront to the king and reason enough to condemn him. And we're going to see the king, he's been sitting on the garden going like, okay, what am I going to do here? Because I'm the one that signed off on this decree. It was Haman's idea. But how am I going to take this blood that's really supposed to be on my hands and wipe it on Haman? So he, he's not sure what to do. He walks in the room, sees Haman begging for his life on top of Esther and says, oh, ah, sexual assault. And he's going to kind of reinterpret the facts and rewrite history, which is something none of our leaders ever do today, right? Uh, and he says, oh, sexual assault. This is how... I couldn't figure out how I'm going to kill Haman when I've given him permission to kill God's people and wrote the edict. So now I'm going to tell everyone he's trying to assault the queen. Is this the truth? Probably not. But honestly, Haman lied to the king to destroy the Jews, and now Haman is going to be destroyed by a lie. As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. The guards throw a bag over Haman's head like a good mafia movie. But really, it's, it's very sad. See, all Haman really wanted was to see the face of his king. He wanted to get closer and closer to the king. And all he wanted was to see the face of his king. And they cover his face in shame and disgrace. So he can no longer look on the face of his king. See, I think Haman has the same longing that each one of us have. To look at the face of our king. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 that one day we will see Jesus, our true and better king, face to face. The reformers in 16th and 17th centuries would talk about living quorum deo. It's a Latin phrase, which means to live before the face of God. Quorum deo, to live before the face of God. Friends, we are invited to live in the presence of the face of God. And one day we will see Jesus face to face. And he will either be smiling and welcoming us into his kingdom. Or our king and judge, his eyes will be filled with wrath. Verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows, the impaling spike that he was going to crucify Mordecai on, that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. Then the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. A king's, a king's wrath requires a sacrifice. Justice requires punishment. In our modern-day culture, we don't like to talk a lot about wrath and judgment and the holiness of God. But see, in this matter, blood must be shed. Someone must pay the penalty and hang on a cross. In this case, it's Haman. Haman wanted to crucify Mordecai, so he built a 75-foot-high impaling pole, the precursor to Roman crucifixion that Jesus suffered. He had it built in his own backyard so that... When Mordecai would hang there, everyone would see that Haman's a man to be bowed down to. And the day before he finished making his cross, and in a huge reversal, Haman is hung on the cross in his own yard in front of everyone. 
See, one of my responsibilities as your pastor is to prepare you for your day of death. Are you ready to die? Are you living in the presence of the face of God, living under his favor and blessing? Or does the king's wrath still burn against you? Honestly, people don't like to talk a lot about sin and death, and they don't like to talk about the wrath of God. King Ahasuerus was an imperfect, unjust king. But someday we will stand before our perfectly just and holy king and have to give an account. Either we allow Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin and to be the propitiation for the wrath of God, or we will stand before our king guilty and under the wrath of God. See, to be truly just and holy, God can't just wink at sin. He can't just say, never mind. He would not be just. If someone was guilty of murder and appeared before a judge, and that judge says, eh, I don't think he meant to do it, never mind, would that be a good judge? No. And God is a perfect judge. And so, therefore, he can't just wink at sin. It can't just disappear. There has to be a price paid for our sins. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned, you and me, and we face, stand under judgment and wrath of God. That the wages of sin is death in Romans 6. We deserve to be hung and killed for our sins. The story of Esther is amazing. But imagine this. Imagine the moment where King Ahasuerus looks at Haman and says, take this man and crucify him now. Imagine instead Esther walks over to Haman and says, Haman, I forgive you and I love you. And turns to the king and says, king, let me take his place so that Haman could become one of God's people. That would be powerful. And that is what Jesus Christ did for you and me. Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you belong to Jesus? Are you living in the presence of the face of Jesus? Did he die for your sins? Or are you still guilty facing the wrath of our perfectly just and holy God? See, Jesus is the true and better Esther. She points to him, but he is the true and better Esther. Here's the amazing thing. This perfectly just and holy king against whom you and I have sinned against and who wrath is against us, he gets off his throne. He comes into human history and identifies us so that we have the opportunity to be saved. Esther stood in the gap for her people. Esther faced the possibility of death but Jesus didn't just face the possibility of death. Jesus died for us. And not just for his own people, but for all people. So that you and I could have eternal life. Jesus is the true and better king. Hazarus went to the garden in anger. But Jesus went to the garden in preparation to give his life for you and me. To be killed by men like Haman. Jesus is the true and better sacrifice. Haman was crucified for his sins, but Jesus is crucified for our sins. 
Haman hung on his cross, but Jesus hangs on our cross. Jesus is the true and better Savior. Esther saved one generation of God's people in one nation, but Jesus saves every generation in every nation under every tribe and tongue. God's people were spared death because Esther identified with her people. But God's people are saved eternal death because Jesus Christ identifies with you and me. That first verse we read, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in front of the king. The deliverance of God's people from death and destruction is initiated on the third day when King Ahasuerus extends his golden scepter to Esther. And this scene shows the gracious act of a king who holds the power of life and death. Presence. And the cross of Christ to the world, all would die in his presence. In the same way that everyone who faced King Ahasuerus and wasn't extended that scepter, the penalty was death. And we stand guilty before our king, deserving of death, But unlike a golden scepter, God holds out the cross of Christ to you and me and invites us to reach out, to go to the cross, to receive imperishable life, guaranteeing safety to all who enter into God's presence, to everyone who reaches out in faith towards Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. Because of the cross of Christ, you and I can live Quorum Deo, in the face of the presence of God. I'm going to invite the band up. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Have you accepted his free gift of salvation on your behalf. If not, I want to invite you to come to the cross, to lay down your guilt, your shame, your sin, your brokenness, all the ways that you try to save yourself, and say, Jesus, I need you. I'm one of those broken pieces. And I want to be made new through you, Maybe this morning you are holding on to a hurt. Maybe it was a physical abuse. Maybe a spiritual abuse by someone you trusted. Maybe with the title pastor. Maybe a father, a ex-husband. I want you to lay that guilt and shame at the cross. And accept his love, his grace, his healing, his forgiveness. Let's pray. God, we thank you that although we stand guilty and under your wrath and deserving of death because of our sin and brokenness, that you extended the cross. You gave your son Jesus to show how much you love us. That there is no 
place you won't go to chase after us. So God, I believe that everyone here in this room and the sound of my voice is here for a purpose and a reason. And God, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would be working. God, I pray for healing. I pray for people that are are bound by the sins of addiction and shame and despair and anxiety, God, that your Holy Spirit would break those chains. God, that those of us who've known you for years and years, God, we'd just be moved to a fresh understanding of your love. God, that this would not become commonplace to us. God, that we would not get tired of the cross. We would not be so used to our own need for a Savior. God, break our hearts anew. Get into the cracks and of our heart. Do your work. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We're going to take a couple minutes before we close our service.